Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. In 2016, Ilhan Omar ran on behalf of District 60B in the Minnesota House of Representatives. She won that race, but her victory wasn't just a victory. It was history, as it made her the first Somali-American legislator in the United States. After a successful two years, she ran to become part of the House, representing Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. She won that race, too, again making her the first Somali-American elected to Congress and first of two Muslim women elected to Congress that same year. Shortly thereafter, Omar became nationally known as a member of the squad, one of the four women of color elected to the House in 2018, alongside Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. For the uninitiated, Omar's platform is focused on guaranteeing access to public education, health care coverage for all, and a Green New Deal to sufficiently combat climate change. Her other primary focus, though, especially in the year we've had in this country, is to create real criminal justice reform. As we know, the police murder of George Floyd unfolded in Minneapolis, which Omar represents as part of the 5th District in Minnesota. With the issue of racial injustice at her doorstep, she's tackled the problem head-on, protesting in the streets, and fighting on Capitol Hill. What we are fighting for is a dignified life. What we are fighting for is an equal access to exist as ourselves. What we are fighting for is to undo 400 years of being brutalized, victimized, surveilled, enslaved, imprisoned and having the life choked out of us in the cities that we call home. We are tired of being tired. That was Omar over the summer speaking at George Floyd's memorial in Minneapolis. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But before we start, I wanted to provide some context for listeners new and old. You see, I'm not a political reporter for the New York Times. I don't cover Capitol Hill. 
I don't pretend to be an expert on policy. That said, I've long felt that the conversations members of the press have with politicians are too focused on the circus of Washington, D.C. You've read and heard these interviews with politicians, in print, online, on television, and the language is so stilted, and the policies are so vague that you leave these conversations and you wonder, what just happened? And even when the questions are pointed, it feels like no one is actually ever answering the question that was just asked. You saw a lot of that during the VP debate, on both sides of the aisle. Questions are asked, and the answers are about whatever the person wants to talk about. That's politics, but it's not this podcast. My aim in this episode, and in our talk with Better or Work from earlier this year, is to focus on the heart and spirit of the person on the other end. It's to give real, genuine space. Space so that Representative Ilhan Omar can just be Ilhan, a woman in America, a woman of color in America, a mother of three, a concerned citizen like you and I both. So that's what we tried to do. This episode was made for anyone open to honest dialogue, regardless of your political persuasions, irrespective of class or race. So, I hope you enjoy it. Representative Omar, thank you so much for being here. It is such an honor to be sitting with you, especially in this moment of ours. The honor is all mine, Sam. I know you are incredibly busy, so why don't we just jump into it? This summer was exceptionally painful for Americans, but I, I also know it was painful for you in certain ways. On May 25th, George Floyd was brutally murdered at the hands and knees of the Minneapolis Police Department. And then less than a month later, your father passed away at the age of 67. He died of COVID-19 complications. And I'm sorry for your loss. I know we don't know each other, but it pains me to hear that. And before we speak of policy, I just wanted to start with personhood. How have you been processing and managing these past few months? Well, Sam, thank you um, for that. Thank you for for grounding us in all that we've we have been through this this past summer. You know, I represent all of Minneapolis, and I also represent fourteen of the suburban municipalities surrounding Minneapolis as well as part of the fifth congressional district. And my father got diagnosed two days after George Floyd was murdered and passed away two weeks after that. And, you know, to simultaneously go through the the pain and the hurt and the unearthing of so many traumas that our community has experienced in the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department and systems that haven't adequately cared for us or included us and haven't really seen our full humanity and personhood was was painful you know i didn't i didn't know george but you know he was somebody's father he was somebody's son and he was a member of of our community and as i gone through my personal loss of losing one of the most important people in in my life because my father wasn't just a father he was the only parent i ever knew and past my teenage years he'd become also my best friend and it it is really hard to be of a community to experience the pain as part of that community but then to also be in a position of influence and to be a policymaker you're not limited right in in the opportunities that you have in creating space for people to dialogue in legislating people's cries and so i've been 
on a journey really to honor that pain, honor that trauma, honor the hurt our community has experienced and not just with the murder of George Floyd, but with losses of life due to a pandemic that has caused now the deaths of 200,000 people. And it's solely because of neglect and people in leadership's inability to cohesively deal with, with the pandemic. Our journey has been to try to legislate Black lives, to have budgets that honor Black lives, to have policies when it comes to investment in healthcare, in education, in anti-policing, to center, right, that the, the, the reason we are mourning the loss of George Floyd, the reason we are mourning the loss of my father, the reason we're seeing, you know, the pandemic disproportionately impact black and brown communities. The reason we are seeing police brutality disproportionately impact black and brown communities. All of that is, it's not an accident, right? It is because of decades and decades of policy decisions that people have made to neglect the economic and social needs of our communities. And so how do we undo that? We do that by creating policies that honor us and policies that allow for there to be proper investment in our humanity, in our dignity, in our personhood, in our opportunities, and in our joy. Well, you did that this summer when you and House Democrats passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. That was an attempt to undo decades upon decades of flawed policy. And in this, for people who don't know, the bill was about establishing new standards of policing, banning the use of chokeholds, stopping no-knock warrants, prohibiting racial profiling, and an end to qualified immunity for police. I know you have spoken about the bill itself. What, what I want to ask you about, when you passed this bill in the House... The vote count was 236 to 181. Do you think it's possible to convince your colleagues, the 181 people, not an insignificant amount of people, that this could be a bipartisan issue? Is it possible to convince Senate Republicans that police reform is in the interest of all people, irrespective of race? Or class? It's not impossible, but um, at the moment it seems unlikely. <laughs> and I say that because I want I want to be honest, right? At the You looked at me like I asked a crazy person question. No, no, I mean it's it is a legitimate question, right? And those of us who seek to, to be hopeful ask these questions ourselves all the time. But we are also honest people, and you can't go after change if you are not rooted in truth and reality. Mm -hmm. And the reality at the moment is that the state of our nation, our politics, is devoid of courage and an ability to really understand what is it that people are mobilizing for and against. It does get exhausting for those of us who come from communities that live on the margins of society to constantly want to constantly be in the process of explaining our plight in this country to ask for a recognition of our humanity, to ask people to support changes that allow for us to feel part of that justice for all <laughs> mantra that is really the foundation of our country. And we still have people who believe in the idea of all lives matter as part of 
Congress is part of our judiciary system, is part of the executive branch, who neglect to understand that when the words were written in the Constitution that all men are created equal, that was written with the irony, right, of of having human beings enslaved in this country. And it was written by people who themselves had enslaved folks. We still have slave clauses within the Constitution. I mean, a lot of people don't still have full access to their voting rights, can't access many opportunities equally. And to say in a mocking way that all lives matter when people say Black lives should matter reminds us really that we have a long way to go (laughs) to convincing Many of these people, you know, the hundred plus folks who voted against a piece of legislation that makes our policing system a more just system. And we have a long way to go to convince the Senate to take up the bill. And we have a long way to go before we can get the current president to sign it into law. And so with all that in mind, I know that the United States has had many opportunities presented to it where transformative change had to take place. And we have seized those opportunities. We have met those moments. And I believe with more pressure from mass mobilization, we will meet this moment. You said something in the beginning of that that I really liked, which is you and I are honest people, or we try to operate from a place of honesty. We don't always succeed, or at least I don't always succeed. I don't know about you. But a lot of Americans are disillusioned with Washington because of the absence of that quality, the lack of honesty. So in the interest of transparency, as you finish your first term in the House, what mistakes have been most valuable to you? What missteps have turned into learning experiences? You know, the House of Representatives are stuck in this election cycle because we get elected every two years. I think the design was supposed to be that you would be grounded in the needs of the folks that you are representing and the fear of losing your reelection before you had an actual impact would drive you to to doing more, right? And to being an actual practitioner of a representative democracy. I mean, I have had, I would say, my share of mishaps. (laughs) And public service is one that requires those of us who actually care about serving people and care about being being held accountable to look at our our actions more concretely and to think about what everything that we do and say means and i mean there are like there are the technical mishaps right where you hire staff and you get the misfortune of having people get sick or have babies and you have to function <laughs> without them. And so you obviously you make mistakes with less staff and not responding to people on time. So there are those kind of mishaps of the work that are more technical. And then there are some policy things. I mean, there have been votes that I have chosen. There was a vote that I didn't choose to take because I I didn't want to be part of the foreign policy machine of creating foreign policy where we're more focused about punishing our adversary than we are about advancing peace and human rights and recognizing genocides and such. I think that particular decision has allowed for me to have a really close and productive working relationship with the constituents that that vote would have been meaningful for if I'd Mm -hmm. taken it. And so, you know, I'm someone who 
is is an example of how every challenge can be an opportunity. And I, I faced the challenge of surviving a civil war and life in a refugee camp to only get an opportunity at a at a life that I could not have imagined. I work from that framework that there is always an opportunity that is presented to you from a challenge if you are willing to to seize it. So much that is written about you has this kind of tenor that I find really confusing and and, and almost funny. The New Yorker last year, they wrote, Omar is a difficult person to stand with. She's not merely a relatively inexperienced politician, unschooled in the ways and language of Washington. She explicitly refuses to be schooled. A refugee, she also refuses to assume the posture of the good immigrant. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much there. Uh, Yeah. And your refusal to be schooled is probably why I admire you so much. I think the heart of the question for me, and I think it's kind of a question many normal Americans not in politics have, how hard is it for someone like yourself to remain true to their principles and their moral compass as opposed to their party? It's extremely challenging. I mean, the latter is the easy path, right? There are rewards um, for that. And there's a punishment oftentimes in politics when you are a principle-based person who will not be bossed or bought (laughs) that makes everything hard from committee work to campaigning to getting opportunities to lead to getting your your legislation passed right it is it is a place that functions to beat you into submission you you go along to get along right and so it is it is challenging but i i don't mind challenge and i don't mind dealing with folks who prescribe motives to to my actions because they don't understand my principles. And I don't mind the conflicts that exist for me with particular policy orientations or politicians or the party, because I think conflict is good. I think conflict, if, if you are in tune to what that conflict is, can help you grow and can produce positive results. Now, if the conflict just exists and you (laughs) are oblivious to the fact that you are living in conflict, then that's a problem. I I mean, the the person is right. I just, I don't understand what, what is wrong with people who have this definition of what it means to be the good immigrant, what it means to be silenced by the gratitude you are supposed to have for your new home. To me, being a good immigrant and someone who believes that they should be grateful for their new home is the is the person who looks around and, you know, helps clean up the messes, mm-hmm. does the dish, you know, anytime you have a guest, you know, which one is a good guest and which one isn't, the one that's helpful, that's making you do the stuff. To me, that's what it means to have gratitude for for that invitation, for that warm welcome, for the opportunity. And so I look around and think, this is a little messy, it needs to get cleaned up. I look around and say, you know, this doesn't belong here and it needs to go there. And I look around to say there are a lot of dishes metaphorically for some of the outdated stuff that we have that needs to get cleaned up. Mm -hmm. So I, I see myself as being in the process of creating a better space for people to enjoy and live and access opportunities that might not have existed when I arrived. And when you arrived, it happened to be on the same evening of President Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton. You both won on the evening of November 8th, 2016. 
In those intervening four years, between then and now, President Trump has mounted numerous attacks towards you. I mean, I look at the one, I look at Omar, I don't know, I never met her. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network T-Mobile's 5G network and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. I hear the way she talks about Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has killed many Americans. She said, you can hold your chest out. You can, when I think of America, huh? When I think of Al-Qaeda, I can hold my chest out. When she talked about the World Trade Center being knocked down, some people, you remember the famous some people. Uh, these are people that, in my opinion, hate our country. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, I mean, I hear the booze. How the hell did she win the primary? How the hell did she win? This woman is crazy. She's a horrible woman who hates our country. How about Omar of Minnesota? We're going to win the state of Minnesota because of her, they say. He's telling us how to run our country. How did you do where you came from? How is your country doing? They're going to tell. She's going to tell us. She's telling us how to run our country. I know the media has presented these words to you, these threats to you. They've asked you to comment on his nastiness and his xenophobia. But what I'm interested in, as a mother of three, as a person of compassion, as a woman of color in this country, what do his words make you feel? Not just when you're on camera or speaking publicly, but when you're at home with yourself, with your family? I think 
for me, as someone who has heard what the president says about me, about immigrants, about Africans or, you know, black folk in general, whether they were descendants of the enslaved or they're immigrants like myself, what he says about women, <laughs> what he says about Muslims, all of these things really are things that are not new to me or new to a lot of people. What I am often taken aback by is the fact that it is coming from the president of the United States. And I don't think people understand that that piece in itself is probably the most disturbing part of, of all of it. Not that he says these things, but that the people don't get that he is not just a man. He is not just Trump. He is the holder of the highest office in this country. He is supposed to represent every single person in this country, whether they got here yesterday or they have been here for generations. And his words and actions have equal weight. I remember as a middle schooler in my eighth grade year, I got a letter and, and, you know, a lot of children get these letters from presidents, from Clinton. And I remember my dad being really excited that I, I received this letter of recognition for my achievements in middle school because we'd just arrived. I've been here for, for a little over a year. And I, if, I think back to that because it did subconsciously make me feel like I was home, right? I was not that much different than any of the other kids in my school, even though the children and some of the teachers and the people around in our neighborhood made me feel like I, I was different. I was another. I wasn't really welcomed in this country. Getting that letter from the president made me feel like yeah, he believes I'm equal, right? Like many of them didn't even get the letter, so I'm good. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know Clinton from anyone, you know, right? I was uh, 13. I had no idea what kind of president he was. I didn't know whether I was supposed to like him or not, right? Like that was not, that was not my concern. My concern at that moment was the way it made me feel, knowing that the president of the United States is celebrating me equally as he is celebrating other kids as Americans. And my eight-year-old the other night, which made me think about my response to the president when he had his cult rally, was sitting next to me. It was, it was close to bedtime and I'd opened... <laughs> a link to somebody's tweet about this. I listened it with her and she said, if he thinks you're not American because you weren't born here, does he know that you have three children who were born here who are going to fight him to keep you in the country? And she's, I mean, she's <laughs> eight, right? And I, I'm sure it's supposed to, you know, like it's heartbreaking to have this eight-year-old here, the, the president of the United States, say these things about her mother. But what was heartbreaking, I think, was the fact that it wasn't about just her mother, right? It was about everyone else who's found a home in the United States, who celebrates my ascending to Congress as something that is an example of not just the American dream being accessible for them, but also that their neighbors and their communities can see them as somebody who can go to Washington and represent their interests. It is one thing for us to consider what kind of violence his words elicit. I have had death threats. There are people who have been prosecuted because they've heard the president 
call me a terrorist. They've heard the president say I shouldn't be in this country and have gone out of their way to act on his behalf to threaten my life. But we've also seen his words about the Latino and Latinx community have a deadly effect where, you know, in El Paso, so many people ended up losing their lives. And so it is not lost on me that the dismissal of his words and saying, you know, like the president says whatever, this is not what he meant, it's being taken out of context, all of these things means that they are dismissing the lives that are being endangered every single day. They're dismissing the actions that people are taking in local municipalities, in counties, in states to limit our rights and our access to the freedoms that are supposed to be given to us in the Constitution. And it continues to erode really any sort of norm and deteriorates society into one that one (laughs) understands the gravity of what it means to be a leader of that magnitude and two, what it means to not lead with empathy and compassion and three, how dangerous it can be when you have people who will actively use their platform to demonize and and vilify folks because we all should have been thought in school. These are things that we should also be exploring ourselves. There is case studies around the world on the dangerous extermination that can take place for minorities when you have a leader of a country engage in dehumanizing language. When you're in eighth grade and you receive that letter from President Clinton, it speaks to something that I know is a pattern in your life, which is to care and prioritize young people. And I'm thinking back on 2016, you had a documentary released called Time for Ilhan. As the film came out, there would be these Q&As after for people to ask you questions. And the director of that film said in these Q&A sessions, you'd always focus and prioritize the youngest person in the room. And right now, we have a lot of young people who are potentially voting for the first time. It is not a given. It is a potential. A lot of young people deciding how much stock they should put into politics. Some of these kids in college and high school are uncertain whether it's even possible for government to function properly. So what do you say to young people in this precarious and important moment? I mean, one, I prioritize young people in rooms all the time because I was raised by adults and was surrounded by adults who prioritized my young voice. And today I'm an adult who believes that you you got to pay that forward, right? I do that with my children in prioritizing their voice, but I also do that with everyone else's child. And for young people today to participate in the political process is revolutionary, and probably one of the most radical things that they can do. And I say that because their voice is being dismissed, their issues are being dismissed, the threat to their livable planet is being dismissed, investment for their education, for their health care, for them to have adequate housing isn't being made. Oftentimes when you are not part of the definition of who's important. (laughs) It is an act of resistance and radicalism and revolution to insist in taking up space. And the best way, I believe, 
that young people can do that today is to take up that space. And I want them to realize the power that comes from that. I represent two constituencies that are now the most importantly prioritized constituency and were the least prioritized constituency before I ran for office. And that's the East African community in Minnesota and the young people, people who are between the ages of 18 and 24. You know, when I first ran, as you probably know from the documentary, I challenged a 44-year incumbent who represented a district of 45,000 people. And the district had what they call the three S's, <laughs> seniors, students, and Somalis. And Somalis was sort of right for, for all the East African community, because there's more than Somalis in that house district in Minnesota. And every single election for that incumbent to stay in office for 44 years the one constituency that was reliable and sought after were the seniors. You engage them, and they themselves are engaged, and you get your turn out, you get to secure your seat. So this was a cycle. And when I decided to run, there was a conversation that was dismissive of my ability to win, of my ability to mobilize people. And there was a thought process that said the Somali community and like the East Africans were going to have a hard time believing in a woman of their community winning an election. So they were not going to waste their votes. And young people who lived in two big campuses, the University of Minnesota and Oxford University, were not <laughs> around in the summer when the primaries happened. So... We don't have to worry about that, right? And so, you know, if Ilhan gets 10% of the votes, it's going to be great. Like, that's probably the most that she can do. Well, what I knew is that there was a correlation between some of the challenges that students were faced with every single day and the work that got done in the Minnesota House. And so not only did we reach out to them to talk to them about the work that we can do together as the representative, we also figured out a way to engage them, right? And mobilize young people to believe in the power of their vote. And I won that primary and defeated the 44-year incumbent. They were right. I didn't get the Somali vote. I got maybe 5% of that vote. But because Somalis when East Africans in that community and young people in that community turned out in record numbers, the Somalis turned out for a male opponent who was Somali that I had. It has that tradition of them voting and turning out in record numbers has not only continued, it's increased every single election I've run in. And to me, it is an example of these two communities saying, you have dismissed us for so long. We understood that this was the way that we can not only resist, but restore hope for our communities. And we can create an opportunity to fight for a vision that allows for us to be included in the political debate. I say all that to say, for young people to vote today in the presidential election, in elections across the country, in municipalities, in congressional races, is for them to say, we are going to resist your message of dismissal. We are going to restore hope for ourselves and our democracy in what's possible. And we are going to not rest until our vision for a better tomorrow is actualized. Before we go, in 1995, your family sought asylum in the U.S., leaving Somalia and then Kenya. You arrived in New York City at the age of 12. Your family then settled in Arlington, Virginia, and then later in Minneapolis. It was there that you learned 
to be the extreme other, in quotes. You've said, I was black, I was Muslim, I also learned I was extremely poor, and that the classless America that my father talked about didn't exist. You turned to your father at the age of 12 and said, this doesn't look like the America you promised. Now that you and I are sitting here together in 2020, what does America look like in your vision moving forward? America looks like a country that has lived up to its ideals, one that has a more equitable and just society, one where people have a living wage, they have access to a home, are you know, living in a space where they can breathe in clean air, have clean water, and have a government that is accountable and transparent. I mean, our biggest challenge really is finding the courage to demand that our lives be prioritized and that politicians and leaders in our communities and in our society who prioritize profit over people should not be in a position to lead or have influence. That is courage that we have to search within ourselves to make that kind of demand, to make that kind of change. And so I understood at a young age that when people like Martha Luther King said, all we ask for America to do is to live up to what it says on paper, and I'm paraphrasing that, is the thing that everybody should be pushing for. A lot of people speak about the greatness of our Constitution and speak to the exceptional ways in which the American society is set up. But they rarely speak to all of that being an idea. <laughs> and its actualization is the work that we all have to be engaged in. And so folks who dismiss our push for transformative change, people who fight us against addressing, you know, social and economic neglects, people who don't want to have a real debate about wages and the economy and healthcare and the climate crisis that we see are all people who benefit really truly from the maintenance of that status quo, who for them, what is on paper without its actualization is fine as it was for the people who believed that saying and writing all men are created equal while there was people who were actively enslaved on American soil was fine. And so we resist and have to continue to persist in asking for America to live up to what it says on paper. I hope we do. And uh, I thank you sincerely, not just for your time here today, but for all that you are doing right now. It means the world to me, and it means the world to a lot of people out there. Thank you. This was fun. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Jacqueline Rogers and Jeremy Slevin. I'd also like to thank Representative Omar for her invaluable time. To learn more about her, visit ilhanomar.com. You can also find links and resources from this conversation in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations around race, activism, and politics, I'd recommend listening to our talks with Dolores Huerta, Better O'Rourke, Claudia Rankin, Roxanne Gay, and Noam Chomsky. 
Also, if you're new to the show, some of my other favorites from 2020 include Janelle Monet, Elizabeth Gilbert, Run the Jewels, and Hassan Minaj. You can find all of those on our website or wherever you do your podcasting, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon. I think if you say to your Alexa, hey Alexa, play Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, it will actually play our show, although it may have a problem with Fragoso. Alexa is not great with Spanish, but give it a try and let us know how it works. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TalkEasyPod. And finally, of course, as you know, this show is made possible by a village. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding and Rena Zhang. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrizak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back with a bonus episode on Wednesday with director Rada Blank. Until then, stay safe and so long. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.